Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of The Boy Fortune Hunters in Alaska by Floyd Akers. Volume 5, Chapter 13, The Catastrophe. I was awakened by the voices of the robbers who were leaving the cave early in order to complete their raft by nightfall. It was evident they had not suspected our intrusion into their retreat or the fact that their stolen treasure had been taken from them. Indeed, they seemed in high spirits, especially Larkin and Judson, who were doubtless eager to carry out their nefarious plan of murdering their comrades as soon as the work on the raft was finished. Daggett might also harbor a conspiracy to secure the bulk of the treasure, and probably all the members of the evil band were looking forward to this coming night to end their suspense and give them advantage over one another. Honor among thieves has often been quoted, but in this instance, as in many others, that could be mentioned, the thieves were as lacking in honor as they were in honesty. From my elevated perch, I watched them file along the ledge to the sands, and upon reaching the level, set off toward the forest. Not till they were well out of sight did Nux or I venture to rise upright and stretch our limbs. The morning was warm and sultry. The sun gleamed hot in a cloudless sky, and not a breath of air stirred the leaves of the three tall trees that stood at the edge of our towering rock. It's going to be a roasting day, I said to Nux, and we won't get any shade from those trees until afternoon. Do you suppose we dare go down to the cave for a while? Nux shook his head. We all safe now, Master Sam. Better not run no risk with this year gold dust. I thoughtfully gazed toward the forest. Those fellows would be cool and comfortable enough in the shade, I remarked rebelliously, and I don't believe they'll come back through the hot sun until it's time to get the treasure. Come on, let's go down to the sea and take a swim. Nux was unable to resist the temptation, so leaving the trousers full of golden grains resting on top of the rock, we made our way cautiously along the narrow winding ledge until we reached the shore. There was not a ripple on the sea, it lay as still and inert as a sheet of glass. But the water was cool, nevertheless, when compared with the stifling atmosphere. And so I and my black companion paddled in it for more than an hour, feeling much refreshed by our luxurious bath. Afterwards, we ate our simple breakfast and then climbed the ledge as far as the mouth of the cave, where we sat down in the shade. Even that slight exertion quite exhausted us. We'll be sure to hear them if they should by chance return, I said. And we'll certainly be roasted if we get on top of this rock where the sun can strike us. I believe it's the hottest day I've ever known. Meanwhile, the men in the forest were finding their work far from pleasant, as Bryonia told us afterwards. They were shaded from the sun, it's true, but the air they breathed was as hot as if it came fresh from an oven and the least exertion caused the perspiration to stream from their pores. So there was considerable grumbling among them in a general shirking of work that made their progress slow. Even Bryonia, who was fairly heat-proof, found he had little energy to swing his axe, although he made a pretense of working as industriously as ever. "'Never mind, boys,' said Daggett, when noon had arrived and they were eating luncheon they had brought in their pockets. The raft will be big enough to carry us and the gold to the ship, I'm sure, for the sea is still as a mill pond. 
We'll just get these two logs to the shore and fasten them to the others and call the thing a go. What do you say? They agreed with him readily enough. As a matter of fact, the raft might suffice to carry them all, but none of them believed that all five would embark upon it. So many murderous schemes were lurking in their minds. Wearily they dragged the two logs toward the sea, but much time was consumed in this operation, and the day was far spent before the raft was complete and ready to launch. Most of the men had stripped themselves naked to work more comfortably, for the heat was well-nigh unbearable. But now, as they stood ready to push the raft into the water, the sun suddenly disappeared, and a cold chill swept over them. "'We're going to have a storm!' cried Daggett, looking curiously into the sky. "'Better leave the raft where it is, lads. Make for the cave!' The warning was unquestionable. Already a low moaning sound came to their ears across the sea, and the sky grew darker each moment. With one accord, the men seized their clothing in their arms and ran along the beach toward the cave, while tiny points of lightning darted here and there about them, casting weird if momentary gleams upon their naked forms. Nux and I were sitting half asleep by the mouth of the cave and were warned by the first chill blast that swept over us that the weather had changed and a storm was imminent. Springing to my feet, I looked fearfully at the darkening sky. "'What'll we do, Nux?' I asked. This'll bring our enemies back here in double time. Better climb to the top of the rock, Master Sam, advised the Sulu. But it'll rain, floods, torrents probably, and there'll be thunder and lightning besides. I expect it will, Master Sam, but rain won't hurt us much. Yeah, and Daggett's gang will if they catch us. I guess you're right, Nux. Come along. As we started along the ledge, the wind came upon us in sudden gusts, and the sky grew so dark that we almost had to feel our way. It was necessary to exercise great care, both to find a secure footing and to cling fast to the face of the rock to prevent our being blown into the abyss below. But we struggled manfully on and presently reached the top, where Nux hoisted me over the edge and then scrambled after me. By this time the lightning was playing all around us, and we were obliged to crawl carefully on hands and knees to the little hollow in the center of the rock, where we were to an extent shielded from the fierce gusts of wind. Even then I feared we would be blown away, but Nux shouted in my ear to hold fast to the gold, which served as a sort of anchor, and enabled us both, as we lay flat in the hollow, to maintain our position securely. And now the lightning began to be accompanied by sharp peals of thunder while the wind suddenly subsided to give place to wild floods of rain. At intervals, we could hear the shouts of the robbers, who had reached the rocks and were creeping along the ledge to their cave. All the elements seemed engaged in a confused turmoil, until I was nearly deafened by the uproar. I tried to ask a question of Nux, but could not hear my own voice, and gave up the attempt. The thought crossed my mind that we had been very foolish to climb to this peak of rock, where we were exposed to the full fury of the storm, and I wondered vaguely as I clung to the sack of gold we had risked so much to secure, how long it would be before the wind swept us away, or we would be annihilated by a bolt of lightning. Presently, an arm was laid across my back as if to protect me, and raising my head, I saw by the light of a vivid flash that Bryonia had joined us and was lying in the hollow at my side. 
I wondered how the daring Sulu had ever managed to reach us, but the strong arm gave me a new sense of security, and impulsively I seized the black man's hand and pressed it to express my gratitude and welcome. An instant later a terrible crash sounded in my ears, while at the same time a blast of fire swept over the rock and seemed to bathe our three prostrate figures in its withering flame. Again came a crash, and another, and yet another, while the crisp lightning darted through the air and made each nerve of our bodies tingle as if pricked by myriad needle points. Half bewildered, I raised my head and saw the great rocking stone sway from side to side and then plunge headlong into the gulf that lay between the precipice and the solitary rock that we reclined upon. And then I felt the mighty column of rock shake and lean outward as if to topple into the sea, while the impact of the fallen mass reverberated above the shriek of the wind and the thunder's loudest roar. Instinctively, I braced myself for the end, the seeming inevitable outcome of this terrible catastrophe. But to my surprise, no violent calamity overwhelmed us. Instead, the lightning, as if satisfied with its work of destruction, gradually abated. The blinding flashes no longer pained my closed eyes with their vivid recurrence, and even the wind and rain moderated and grew less violent. Chapter 14 Buried Alive Terrified beyond measure by the awfulness of the storm, I gave little heed to the fact that the rocky hollow in which I lay with the two faithful blacks held filled with water so that our bodies were nearly covered by the pool that had formed. My head still rested on the trousers packed with gold, and one arm was closely clasped around a leg containing the treasured metal grains. So I lay half-dazed and scarcely daring to move, while the rain pattered down upon us and the storm sobbed itself out by degrees. I must have lost consciousness after a time, for my first distinct recollection is of Bryonia drawing my body from the pool to lay it on a drier portion of the rock, where the overhanging trees slightly sheltered me. The sky had grown lighter by now, and while black streaks of cloud still drifted swiftly across the face of the moon, there were times when the great disk was clear and shed its light brilliantly over the bleak and desolate landscape. Within an hour the rain had ceased altogether, and the stars came out to join the moon, but still we lay motionless atop the peak of rock, worn out by our struggles with the elements and fitfully dozing in spite of the horrors we had passed through. Bry was the first to arouse and found the sun shining overhead. There was no wind and the temperature of the morning air was warm and genial. The black's legs pained him for in his terrible climb up the rock during the storm, a jagged piece of rock had cut his thigh and torn the flesh badly. He had not noticed it until now, but after examining the wound he bathed it in the water of the pool and bound it up with a rag torn from his shirt. While he was thus occupied, Nux sat up and watched him, yawning. They spoke together in low tones, using the expressive Sulu language, and had soon acquainted each other with the events that had occurred since they separated. Their murmured words aroused me to a realization of the present, and having partially collected my thoughts, I began to rub my eyes and look wonderingly around me. 
The top of the rock was no longer flat, but inclined toward the sea. The three tall trees also inclined that way instead of growing upright, and the neighboring cliff of the mainland seemed even farther removed from us than before. Something appeared to be missing in the landscape, and then I suddenly remembered how the rocking stone had leapt into the gulf during the storm. Are we all safe? I asked, looking at my black friends gratefully. Oh, safe, answered Bryce, smiling. It was a dreadful night, I continued with a shudder. Have you heard anything from the robbers yet? No, Massa Sam. They're probably sleeping late. Anyhow, they can't have gone away on the raft yet. Bryce shook his head. All very wicked mans, Master Sam. Even in big storm while we climb up to cave, Master Daggett tell me to go behind Pete and push him off a rock. What? What a villain, I exclaimed indignantly. He tell me if I not push Pete off, he kill me, continued Bry with a grin. What did you do? When they run into the cave, I run by it and come here. That's all, Master Sam. Well, you did well, Bry. If they climb up here after you, we'll fight them to the death. No climb rock any more, Massa Sam, said Bry soberly. Why not? See how rock tip? Only fly can climb rock now. Oh, I think you're right, Bry, I cried, startled by this dreadful assertion. And if so, we're prisoners here. Let's see what it looks like. I crawled rather stiffly down the inclined surface to the edge overlooking the sea, and one glance showed me that it would now be impossible for anybody to walk along the narrow ledge. While I looked, a sharp cry of horror from Nux reached my ears, and swiftly turning I hastened with Bry toward the place where the black was leaning over the gulf that separated the peak from the mainland. What is it, Nux? I asked anxiously. But the Sulu only stood motionless, pointing with one finger into the abyss, while his eyes stared downward with an expression of abject fear. We both followed his gaze, and one glance was sufficient to fully acquaint us with the awful catastrophe the vengeance of the storm had sought. The huge rocking stone weighing thousands of tons, which for ages remained delicately balanced upon the edge of the chasm, had been struck by a bolt of lightning and torn from its base. Crashing into the gulf, a point of the great wedge-shaped boulder had entered the mouth of the cave where the desperados sought shelter, and, crowded forward by its own weight, it had sealed up the robbers in a living grave, from whence no power of man could ever rescue them. It was this mighty wedge, crowded into the space between the slender peak and the main cliff, that had caused the former to lean outward, and in one comprehensive look we were able to read the whole story of the night's tragedy, a tragedy we had instinctively felt in the crash of the storm, but could only realize now. Poor fellows, I whispered softly, forgetting in my awe that they had been our relentless enemies. It was a terrible fate. Perhaps even now they're sitting in that dark hole shut off from all the world, waiting for death to overtake them. It's dreadful. The blacks glanced at one another without reply, but I noticed that they exchanged a secret sign which their pagan priests had taught them when they were boys, and which was supposed to propitiate the demon of retribution. To their simple minds, Daggett and his gang of cutthroats had been properly punished for their wickedness. But for my part, I'm glad to remember 
And at that moment, I ignored the fact that those men were wicked and grieved for four human beings who had suddenly been cut off in their prime of manhood. The recollection of their crimes might temper my regret afterwards, but just now my thoughts were all of sorrow and commiseration. Nux roused me from my reflections by asking, What do we do now, Masa Sam? I'm not sure, I answered despairingly. If we can't escape from this rock, we're little better off than those poor fellows below us. See? The stone, as it fell, tore away the ledge completely. No climb down, any way at all, said Bry, squatting upon the rock and clasping his knees with his hands. We don't have any rope or enough clothing to make one, I continued, striving to be calm and force myself to think clearly. But if we remain up here... It won't take us long to die of thirst or starvation. The aggravating thing about it is is that the mainland is just too far away for us to leap across. We're in a bad fix, boys. No mistake. Bry glanced reflectively at the trees. If we had an axe, he said, we chop down tree and make fall across the gulf. Oh, that's a great idea, I cried, but my elation quickly subsided and I added gloomily in the next breath, only we don't have any axe. Bry made no answer, but sat thoughtfully gazing about him. Presently he began to creep around the table of rock with his hands and knees, carefully examining every part of its surface with great care. At one place where the edge of the rock was jagged and of a harder character than the rest, he paused to make a more thorough examination. Then he drew out his one-bladed jackknife and began prying into the rock with its point. Nux and I immediately crept to his side to see what he was doing, and soon Bry had loosened a piece of rock that weighed about five pounds. It was flat on the lower surface and of irregular circular form. This fragment the Sulu examined with great care and struck it sharply against the rock without breaking it. It seemed to meet his approval, for he laid it carefully aside and at once attempted to pry up another portion of the hard rock. Then, when he had again succeeded, he sat down and began cautiously chipping one piece of rock against the other until he had brought the first fragment to a wedge shape that resembled a rude axe. "'Oh, I understand now what you're about, Bry!' I exclaimed delightedly. "'Do you think you can make it work?' Bry nodded. "'That is the way we make axe in Jolo Jolo,' he said proudly. He now handed the rude implement to Nux, who seemed to comprehend without words what was required of him, for he at once began rubbing the edge of the stone axe upon a rough portion of rock to smooth and sharpen it more perfectly. Meanwhile, Bry pried up more rock and formed a second axe head, and so for several hours the men labored patiently their task, while I, unable to be of any assistance, sat watching them with breathless interest. When the second axe was ready for Nux to sharpen, Bry climbed up the trunk of one of the tall pines, and selecting a branch of the size he desired, with much effort, cut it from the tree with his knife. Then he descended, trimmed the branch, and began fashioning it into an axe handle. He made no attempt to render it graceful or beautiful, you could be sure of that. The one requirement was service, and the wood was tough and strong enough to answer the purpose required. By the time the handle was ready, Nux had worn the edge of the first rude stone axe to a fair degree of sharpness. 
and with it Bry split the end of the handle far enough down to wedge the axe head between the pieces. Then he bound the top together with strips of bark cut from a young limb, which was far stronger than any cord would have been. It was a clumsy instrument, you could be sure, when it was finished. But Bry balanced it gravely in his hands and swung it around his head and nodded his full approval and satisfaction. Now we chop down the tree, he announced. Of the three trees that fortunately grew upon the column of rock, two were evidently too short to reach across the gulf from where we stood. But the third was close to the edge and towered well above its fellows. So this was the one Bry selected. A woodsman would have probably laughed at the strokes dealt by the Sulu. But Bry knew what he was about, for he had chopped trees in this way before. Too hard a blow would have crushed the stone edge of the weapon, and a prying motion would have broken it at once. So the black struck straight and true, and not with too much force, and slowly but surely wore through the stalwart trunk of the tree. When the axe got dull, he unbound the bark thongs and exchanged it for the other axe head, while Nux resharpened it. This consumed a good deal of time, and the day was far advanced before Bry decided that the chopping was deep enough to allow them to fell the tree. They did this in a peculiar way, for Nux climbed into the high branches, and then, aided by Bry and me, who pushed from below, he began swaying the tree back and forth, his own weight adding to the strain, until suddenly it gave way at the stump, and slowly at first, but with ever-accelerating speed, fell with a crash across the gulf. It looked like a trying and dangerous position for Nux, but the black cleverly kept to the outer side of the branches, which broke his fall so perfectly that even as the tree touched the cliff, he sprang to the ground, safe and uninjured. Hooray! I shouted in delight, for this bridge removed from my heart all terrors of starvation and imprisonment, affording us a means of leaving the island of rock as soon as we pleased to go. But the sun was even now sinking below the horizon, so we decided not to effect the crossing until morning. Nux climbed back over the swaying trunk, and after he had rejoined us, we ate the last crumbs of food we possessed for our supper, and then lay down to sleep. Having passed the day in idleness, I found I was not very tired or sleepy, but the blacks were thoroughly exhausted by their labors, and they welcomed the rest as only weary men can. Long after they were snoring, I sat in the moonlight, thinking of our strange adventures of the past twenty-four hours, the recovery of the gold, the destruction of the robbers, and our present means of release from the dangerous pinnacle that had threatened to hold us fast prisoners. And I realized with a grateful heart that I owed all my good fortune and narrow escapes to the faithful black men, and made a vow that I would never in the future forget the services they had rendered. Chapter 15 The Major Gives Chase Meanwhile, there had been much excitement and confusion in the camp when it was discovered that several of the men, including Nux and Bry, and even the boy Sam, had disappeared during the night with most of the gold that had been accumulated. I can relate fairly well what occurred, for I heard the story often enough afterwards. The Major was furious with rage at first, and sent at once for Uncle Naboth, whom he accused of being at the bottom of the plot to rob him. Mr. Perkins was so full of his own anxieties, 
he paid little attention to the red-bearded giant's ravings. I'm afraid Sam's in trouble, he said nervously. In trouble? Ye bet he is, yelled the major. I'll skin him alive when I catch him. That's the point, answered Uncle Naboth. How are we to find him again? I'll risk your hurting the boy if we can only find out where they've taken him. Your blacks are gone too, the major reminded him. That's the only thing that gives me hope, sir, retorted my uncle. Those black men are as faithful and honest as any men on the earth, and I'm thinking they've gone after Sam to try to rescue him. Then you think he's been kidnapped, do you? Of course. The men that are missing are the worst of your lot. The ones that have caused you the most trouble in every way. There's not a man from the Flipper's crew among them. The way I figure it out is that Daggett, Larkin, Hayes, and Judson made a plot to steal all the gold, and then escape with it. They robbed you first, then they robbed Sam, and when the boy tried to make a fuss, they just kidnapped him and took him along with them. Oh, what about your blacks? asked the Major sarcastically. That puzzles me, I'll admit, acknowledged my uncle. Brian Nux may have seen the thieves get away with Sam and followed after them to try to rescue him. That's the only way I can figure it out just now. We're losing time, Major. What's to be done? Two things. Get back the gold and shoot down the robbers like dogs. They can't get away, you know. They're somewhere on this island, and I mean to find them. There is the ship. What of it? If they get aboard and sail away, we'll be in a bad box. How can they get aboard? We've got the small boats. They can make a raft or even swim out to the ship, returned Uncle Naboth shrewdly. I tell you, Major, you're wasting your time. Why don't you do something? The Major glanced at him as if undecided whether to be angry with him or not. But Mr. Perkins was undoubtedly right, and the miners were gathering outside the door with curses and threats against the men who had robbed them, for the news had quickly spread throughout the camp. So their leaders sent six men, heavily armed, in the ship's longboat to board the flipper and protect the vessel from being captured. These were all his own men, for he still suspected that the flipper's crew were in some way implicated in the theft. Then he picked four miners and four of the sailors to form a party to search for the robbers. And then he decided to lead the band himself and to take Uncle Naboth with him. The rest of the men were ordered to resume their work of washing out gold. Gonna trust ye, Perkins, said the Major, for your loss is as great as ours, and you seem anxious over that boy of yours. But if I meet with any treachery, I'll shoot you on the spot. And if I find that Sam Steele is one of the thieves, I'll show him no mercy, I promise you. Quite satisfactory, sir, answered Uncle Naboth calmly. Only let's get started as soon as possible. It was a puzzle at first to know in which direction to look for the fugitives, but Ned Britton had been carefully inspecting the edge of the forest and came upon one of the paths Daggett had made in the course of his various wanderings inland. It was not the one we had taken, but away they started through the thicket on a false scent, and the entire day was consumed in a vain search. As they sat over their campfire at evening, Ned proposed that they try the other side of the island the following day. It's where the ship lies anchored, sir, he told the Major, and it's most likely the men are in that neighborhood. 
The paths we've been following today are old trails that lead nowhere in particular, and there's no use going any farther in this direction. This proposition was so sensible that the Major at once agreed to it, and Daybreak saw them tramping through the tangled underbrush toward the opposite side of the island. Britain, who had a good sense of direction, knew about where the ship lay, and undertook to guide them, and was fortunate enough to strike the trail of the robbers about the middle of the afternoon. The tracks lay directly toward the beach, and they pressed on with renewed vigor. But the heat was more terribly oppressive in the more open country they now reached, and the men were all exhausted by the long tramp. When a little later the sky grew black and the storm burst upon them, they withdrew to a thick grove of trees and rigged up a temporary shelter with their blankets beneath which they passed the night. The storm raged all around them, and occasionally the crash of a fallen tree startled their nerves. But the high cliff broke the force of the wind, and the lightning was less severe than it was directly on the coast. Uncle Naboth thought of me more than once during this rage of the elements, and hoped I was safe from harm. Indeed, his anxiety was so great he could scarcely close his eyes throughout the night. At daybreak they left their shelter and gazed wonderingly at the scene of devastation around them. The storm had wrought fearful havoc everywhere, and when they resumed their journey, their progress was necessarily slow and difficult. Still, they labored on, and in the afternoon passed through the forest and came upon the coast directly opposite the place where the flipper still rode at anchor under bare masts. She seemed to have escaped all the danger from the storm, and although the sea was still rolling high, the good ship nodded her prow to each wave with a grace that betokened she was still in good condition. "'Well, boys, the robbers haven't got her yet,' cried Uncle Naboth delightedly. "'No, but they've had a try for it already,' said the Major, significantly as he pointed to a half-finished raft that had been lifted high by the waves of the previous night and wedged fast between two great trees. "'Evidently the scoundrels don't know we sent a squad to guard the ship.' "'We're on their trail, all right,' remarked Ned Britton, after examining the crudely constructed raft carefully. But where do you suppose they are? Somewhere along the coast, of course, said Uncle Naboth. Let's walk up the edge of the bay to the inlet and see if they're in that direction. So they made for the inlet, failing, of course, to find any traces of the thieves. They were seen from the deck of the flipper by the men who had been sent aboard in the longboat, and the major signaled them to remain where they were for the present. After a brief halt, the little band retraced their steps to examine the coast in the other direction, and another night overtook them within hailing distance of the rocky peak where I and my two blacks were resting beside our newly acquired bridge to await impatiently the morning. But the Major's party was, of course, unaware of this, and went into camp in a hollow where the light of their fire was unobserved by us. By daybreak, however, Uncle Naboth and Ned Britton were up and anxiously exploring the coast, and presently they saw a little distance away the tall form of Bryonia walking carefully across our tree trunk. The black almost fell into the arms of Uncle Naboth as he stepped off the tree, and the old man's first anxious question was, Where's Sam? Here I am, Uncle, I cried from my rock. I'll be with you in a minute, but we've got to get the gold over first. The gold, cried Uncle Naboth in amazement. Have you got it then, after all? To be sure, I said with a touch of pride. Got back every grain of it. Uncle Naboth groaned. I didn't think you'd do it, Sam, my boy, he said regretfully. 
I couldn't have done it without Nux and Bry, I answered, not understanding that I had been accused of the theft. The old man turned reproachfully to Bry, who stood grinning beside him. Did I ever teach you to steal, sir? he demanded sternly. Taking gold from robbers ain't stealing, replied the black in a calm tone. What robbers? Doggett on Pete on... Oh, I see, exclaimed Uncle Naboth, a light breaking upon his confused mind. They stole the gold from the camp, I suppose, and you and Sam have followed them up and got it back again. That's it, exactly, Uncle, I declared from my side of the precipice, where I could hear every word spoken. I'll tell you the whole story by and by. Just then I was wondering if I dared to cross the tree. It seemed very frail, and the rounded trunk was difficult to walk upon. Should I lose my balance, there were only a few slender branches to cling to in order to keep from toppling over into the gulf below. Bry saw my dilemma, however, and running lightly across the tree again, he caught me up boldly and perched me upon his broad shoulders. Hold fast, Massa Sam, he called, and the next moment stepped out fearlessly, and while Uncle Naboth held his breath in grim suspense, the black crossed the swaying tree and dropped me safely on the other side. The old man had barely time to grasp both my hands in a warm clasp when the big major came up, blowing and sputtering with the balance of the party. Well, where's the rest of the thieves? He cried out, glaring fiercely at me, and then at Bry. Under that rock there, sir, I answered gravely, with a shudder at the recollection of their dreadful punishment. And then, in as few words as possible, I told the story of our adventures, relating how we had followed the robbers and recovered the gold, and of the great storm that had set the rocking stone hurtling into the chasm to seal up the evil band in a living tomb. Even the Major was impressed by the weird tale, and Uncle Naboth wiped the sweat from his brow as he leaned over the cliff and marked the immense wedge of the rock that had closed forever the mouth of the cavern. "'Seems to me there's no one left to punish,' growled the red beard in a low voice. "'I'm glad the faith of those scoundrels was taken out of my hands. "'That's for you, young man,' he turned suddenly to me. "'You've acted splendidly, and so have the blacks. "'Let's shake hands all around.' I felt my face turn as red as the matron's whiskers at this unexpected praise. Hooray! yelled Ned Britton, and the others joined him in a mighty shout of approval. Then Ned and Bry crossed the tree to where Nux was still standing on the peak, and hoisted the loaded trousers to Bryonia's back. Nux crossed over in front, and Ned Britton behind the bearer of the precious gold to save him if he made a misstep, but their caution was unnecessary. The big Sulu was as sure-footed as a goat, and safely deposited his burden at the Major's feet. Then we all returned to the nearby camp for breakfast, after which the gold being taken from the trousers and distributed into several small packages that they might be more easily carried, Nux was given his leg coverings again to his infinite satisfaction. And now, said the Major, we'll make tracks for the camp. We've been away a long time, but we've got the gold back and got rid of the worst characters among the lot of us, so there's nothing much to grumble over, after all. Chapter 16 The Grave Captain Gay Perhaps it was only natural that I should become the hero of the miners when the camp was at last reached, and the men learned the strange story of our recovery of the gold. Nux and Bry also came in for a good share of the praise, which they well deserved and it seemed as if the adventure had established a permanent good feeling between the gold-seekers 
and our crew of the flipper. There was no more suspicion on either side, and when the major made a new division of the recovered gold, he generously insisted that I should receive even more than I had been robbed of for my share. Whatever the major's faults might be, he was certainly liberal in his dealings with others, and Uncle Naboth was greatly pleased with the profitable result of an adventure that at first threatened to ruin the fortunes of Perkins and Steele. No one mourned very much over the death of the men who had stolen the gold. On the contrary, there was a feeling of general relief that the four desperados were unable to cause any more trouble. Therefore the camp resumed its former routine, and the miners set to work with renewed vigor to wash out the golden grains from the rich sands of the inlet. It was about this time that the grave and reserved Captain Gay proved himself to be a genius, and by an act of real cleverness that crowned his name with glory materially shortened the stay of our entire community on the island. The captain had worked side by side with the common sailors, for the major showed no favoritism, and insisted that every able-bodied man should perform his share of the work. Even Uncle Naboth had, from the first day of our capture, toiled from morning till night. But he accepted his tasks with rare good nature, and frequently confided to me in his droll way that his enforced labor had added ten years to his life. I was getting altogether too chunky and fat, he said one evening, and likely enough I'd have been troubled sooner or later with apoplexy or dropsical. But now I've lost twenty or thirty pounds weight and feel as lively as a cricket in a hornet's nest. Work's a good thing, Sam. I'm glad the Major made me do it. He's probably saved my life by his cussedness. Captain Gay had been working at the upper end of the inlet, near to the place where a slender mountain stream fell from a precipice above and mingled its fresh water with that of the inlet. The stream fell upon a rocky bottom, but in course of years it had worn a bowl-shaped hollow in the rock, which could be distinctly observed through the transparent water. There ought to be a lot of gold in that hollow, Ned Britton had remarked to the captain one day. I've an idea of all the gold we find in the sands of the inlet has been brought here by the mountain streams. I've been thinking that myself, answered the captain, but it was a week later that he climbed the rock and followed the bend of the stream for nearly a mile, marking carefully the lay of the land. The next morning he went to the major with his plan, which was nothing less than a proposal to turn the stream from its bed several hundred yards above and let it follow a new course and reach the inlet a hundred feet distant from its present fall. The major stared carefully at the captain for a time, then followed him up the stream and made a careful examination of the territory. The result was an order for all the seamen of the flipper to place themselves at the disposal of Captain Gay and obey his orders. In three days they had built a dam of rocks and brushwood nearly across the stream and pried away the banks in another place to allow the water to escape by the new channel. The fourth day the opening was closed in the dam and the stream plunged away on its new course, leaving its former bed practically dry. Immediately the men ran down to the inlet where the major himself waded to the hollow caused by the previous fall of water and dipped up a pan of sand from the cavity. Upon examination it proved richer in gold than any of us had anticipated. The sand contained many small nuggets which being heavier than the grains of metal had been accumulating for many years in the basin. All hands were set to work in this locality and inspired by the rich harvest that rewarded their toil, they labored early and late until the bags of dust and nuggets had become so numerous that even the major was filled with amazement. But this was not all that was gained by turning the mountain stream from its bed. 
In several hollows above, Captain Gay discovered rich deposits of small nuggets that were secured with ease, and two weeks later the Major called a meeting of all the members of the party on the sands before his tent. Boys, he said, we've got enough to make every one of us rich for life. What's the use of staying here longer? I'm getting homesick for one, and a good many of you are longing to get back to the States and begin spending your piles. What do you say? Shall we board the ship and go home? Yes, they yelled without a dissenting voice. Then, said the Major, tomorrow we'll divide the spoils so that every man has his own share, and then we'll pay our passage money to Mr. Perkins and sail away home. The division was accomplished with very little dissatisfaction or friction, for the worst elements of our assorted company had been removed, and the Major was absolutely just in his decisions. One or two, to be sure, grumbled that the provisions from the flipper had been purchased at too high a price, or that too much of the gold was set aside to pay for the passage back to San Francisco. But not one objected when the Major set aside three heavy bags of gold to reward Captain Gay for his clever feat in turning the mountain stream. When Uncle Naboth and I, in the seclusion of my hut, had figured out our share of the profits, the old man was hugely delighted. My partner, he exclaimed, slapping his thigh with enthusiasm. It's paid us better than three trips to Alaska. We've nearly made our fortune, Sam, my boy. And if we get home safe again, we can thank the Major for taking us prisoners. It did not take our party long to transfer all their possessions to the decks of the flipper. The ship's carpenter and part of the crew had been sent beforehand to clear up the rigging, ship a new rudder, and make some repairs that had been rendered necessary by the storm that had driven us to the strange island. To my inexperienced eyes, the damage had been so great that it seemed as if the sailors would require weeks in which to make the vessel fit again to put on the sea. So I was astonished when I went aboard to note how quickly the task had been accomplished. Indeed, the flipper seemed as trim and staunch as when she had last sailed out of the Golden Gate, and doubtless she was fully able to bear us all safely home again. Once all our party was aboard, together with their property, Captain Gay ordered the anchors hoisted, and at eleven o'clock, the morning of September 16th, the flipper headed out to sea before a fair breeze. The quarters aft had been given up to the miners, most of whom were obliged to swing hammocks in the cabin. The mate offered his little room to the major and bunked with the sailors in the forecastle. But Captain Gay and Mr. Perkins retained their own rooms, and so did I, in order to watch over the firm's gold, which was stowed carefully away in my lockers. You may be sure I was glad to get back to my books and my comfortable bed again, and overjoyed to find myself on the way to a more civilized land. As the ship stood out to sea, the Major, who had been pacing the deck with a thoughtful brow, noticed Captain Gay taking his bearings with the aid of the sextant while I stood observing him. At once the big man's countenance cleared, and he strode over to us and anxiously watched the captain while the latter made notes of his observations. Several of the miners likewise seemed interested but it was evident they did not understand in the least what the captain was doing. No sooner, however, had Captain Gay returned to his cabin, where at his request I followed him, than the Major knocked for admittance. And being invited to enter, he cautiously closed the door after him and said, You've relieved me of a great worry, Captain. I was afraid we'd never be able to find this island again. But the sextant gives you latitude and longitude, does it not? Captain Gay nodded and looked thoughtfully out his little window at the fast-receding island. It, that island's mine, continued the Major in a stern voice. 
and I shall claim it until someone else proves a better right to the place. Still the captain made no reply. The major stared at him as though he had just discovered the man. Does anyone else on board know how to use those instruments? he asked finally. No one, answered the captain briefly. Then the seeker is safe with us, resumed the major. I'll just trouble you, my good fellow, to give me the exact longitude and latitude of the island. I'll mark them down in my notebook. Come to me tomorrow noon, said Captain Gay. Why tomorrow noon, he said with a sudden frown. Don't you understand that it requires hours to figure out so complicated a problem? Oh, it does. Well, I'll come in tomorrow then, but understand, not a word of the true reckoning to a soul on board, not even to Perkins or the boy here who has no business to be listening to this conversation, and had better forget it. The island is mine. Captain Gay sat silently, merely drumming with his fingers on the little table before him. The Major gave him another curious look and stalked away, whistling softly to himself, as if something had occurred to puzzle him. Indeed, the captain's face was so set and stern it made me uncomfortable. I soon left him and returned to my own room. The flipper made good time during the afternoon, and before darkness fell, those on board saw the island where they had labored so hard and endured so much gradually sink into the sea and disappear. The breeze held all through the night, and daybreak found the sturdy ship plowing steadily onward over the waste of gray waters. The sailors had fallen into their usual routine and performed their labors with mechanical precision while the miners lay around the deck and watched them with the interest landsmen usually show when on a sailing ship. At the stroke of twelve I saw the major promptly approach the captain's room, where I knew the seaman was busily engaged in writing. Wishing to learn the result of the second interview, I crept forward, and without hesitation established myself beside the door, which the redbeard had carelessly left ajar. I even ventured to peer curiously through the opening, but neither of the men observed my intrusion. The Major, for a moment, stood staring with the same wondering gaze he had bestowed on Captain Gay the day before, but suddenly his face brightened and he said, "'By Jupiter! I've struck it at last!' "'Struck what?' asked the Captain, looking up. "'The resemblance that bothered me. You're the living image of that man Daggett, who caused us that trouble on the island. It's a wonder I never noticed it before.' The Captain flushed but said nothing. "'No relation, I hope.' queried the major, grinning. To Daggett? Yes, the scoundrel who stole our gold. Captain Gay had resumed his writing, but said lightly as if the matter was too preposterous to be treated seriously. Is that likely, sir? But already the major's mind had turned to a more important subject. I've come for that little memorandum, sir. What memorandum? asked the captain quietly. The location of my island. Oh, I can't give that to you, said the other. When you left this room yesterday, the draft from the open door caught the paper I made the figures on and carried it out the window. So the record is lost. Lost? The Major stared at him in amazement. Absolutely lost, sir. Do you mean to tell me you don't know where that island is? demanded the Major fiercely. I do not have the slightest idea of its location. During the night the helmsman altered our course several times, steering by the stars. I think we're going in the right direction, 
but I can tell better when I've taken our observations for today. Unfortunately, that won't help us locate the island. The Major sat down heavily on a chest. The information he had received fairly dazed him, but his gaze remained firmly fixed on the captain's expressionless face. After a time, he gave a laugh and said, I told you yesterday that island was mine. I'll take that back. It's yours and mine. I'll sh you'll share it with me, Captain Gay, I'm sure. It is still yours, Major, as far as I'm concerned. If I knew its location, I would tell you willingly. But I don't. You'll have to find your property yourself. The Major sprang up with an oath. You infernal scoundrel! Do you think I'll be played like this? Give me the location of that island, or by the nine great gods, I'll kill you where you sit! Leave this room, sir. The captain was angry, too, by this time, and he stood erect and pointed with dignity to the doorway from which I dodged with alacrity. I command this ship, sir, and here my will is law. I'll endure no browbeating, Major or any insolence from you or any of my passengers. On the island I obeyed you. Here you'll obey me, or I'll lock you fast in your cabin. Now leave this room. The Major stood irresolute a moment. Then sullenly and slowly he quit the cabin and returned to the deck. Even to my wondering but immature intellect, it was evident that Captain Gay had won the battle.